Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. Today, we receive a visit from Silicon Valley. Philip Stauffer, an investor from Palo Alto, returns to his home country and meets us for an interview in Zurich. Today we talk about his Swiss roots and how he made his way to the US despite the 9-11 terrorist attacks, how he became an investor and how he chooses his investments, the parallels between Elon Musk and the Swiss entrepreneur Alfred Escher, and much more. It is shortly after 10.30 am on this Sunday morning and Philip arrives at the Blue Line co-working space in Zurich. After an already very exciting preliminary talk, we start the microphones and explore Philip's Swiss roots. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SPB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at spbstartup.com. Philip, a very warm welcome to the Swiss Printer Show. It's great to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are here in Zurich, uh, pretty close to Winterthur, the city where you actually grew up. Nowadays, you live in Silicon Valley in the United States, and you've basically traveled a lot through your different activities as a, as a successful businessman and entrepreneur, and also had some great investments in startups from all over the world. So I wonder, where does this entrepreneurial spirit come from? What influenced you to sort of take down this path and actually living at the edge of what's next, what's coming up in the future? Yeah, interesting question. I think you always uh, realize later in life why you do certain things. Um, but I was, I was always very excited about what, what's next. And I think that's what drove me in school. That's what drove me in jobs I took. Um, my first job really was, uh, one of the first jobs was with uh, Fontobel Asset Management. And uh, we launched back then, that was like around 1993, when we launched a Swiss small equity fund, which was an innovation back then to invest in small capped public companies. Um, and I was lucky that I could travel around with uh, sometimes with fund managers and interview management teams. And I got fascinated by um, their, uh, by companies who maybe have 300 people. So it's kind of small, but they have 80% market share globally, right? And I constantly wondered how is that possible for small companies to be so leading in certain areas? And I got more and more excited about, uh, uh, you know, I was always excited about innovation, but I got more excited about learning why that is even possible. And I think that was kind of the time when I personally decided that I want to learn about that as an entrepreneur, as an employee somewhere, as whatever I do, right? So I looked for ways to do that. And uh, as I voiced my ideas also with my uh, boss back then at Fontobel, uh, he started to realize, well, maybe Philippe is more interested in actually uh, starting his company than uh, um, being in fund management, which is interesting because I'm actually running a fund now. Um, <laughs> and I think he was right. So in life, sometimes you need to do certain, certain paths that lead you to really what you want to do. So in order for you to be able to do it well, uh, I also have a 
uh, and we probably talk about that uh, uh, a little later as well. But also I have, I realized uh, later as my father actually was looking into our family history that we were just full of crazy entrepreneurs. And um, part of my family uh, after the before the Second World War built uh, a significant cheese business in Hungary. Uh, my Burgerort is uh, Rüti by Buren Bern, uh, but the Stauffer family was always in the cheese business. Uh, very deep roots there, and part of the family went to Hungary to build um, the cheese business. And then after the Second World War, when the Russians came to Hungary and expropriated everything, everything was gone. Um, factories, retail stores, it was a significant business. Uh, one of the factories actually uh, was recently, a few years back, was sold for $800 million to a French company, but it was owned by the, it was taken away and then owned by the, uh, by the government. Um, and there's crazy stories there of um, my grand-uncles, three of them. So think about it, right? Like the, 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 Russians, the Russians came in and then from one night to the other, uh, all your property is gone. And now it's communism, right? And so what my uncles did is, the grand-uncles did is, they looked at the key IP they had, which was one machine that did certain things around cheese manufacturing in very specific novel ways. And so it's not a patent where you have like a piece of paper and you can replicate it, but you need the machine. And if you take now that machine and you take it out of the country, you go to jail. But the previous date was yours, now it's not. And so what they did is they dissembled the whole uh, machine. Uh, the three brothers took parts of those uh, uh, parts of the machine, so nobody could really tell that it, it, you're stealing a machine. And one grand, uh, grand uncle went on a bike, the other one on a train, and the, and the last one uh, uh, in other ways back to Switzerland. And then they assembled that machine again back in Switzerland after uh, after they got there. So in case the Russians uh, would catch them, uh, they couldn't tell. Um, Switzerland then made it really hard actually for them to start a cheese business again. The Swiss, uh, Swiss cheese cartel was really strong and they didn't like a new entrant coming back. And so they said, okay, well, then we go to the next uh, cheese, let's say, um, uh, cheese manufacturing area, uh, which was Wisconsin in the US. So they left Switzerland and built uh, another cheese business uh, in Wisconsin. And it was interesting, uh, there was an article at some point um, where they were celebrated in the US. The, the Swiss stole uh, their own machine from the Russians and they were, of course, uh, celebrated as like representing capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, there's a, there's a lot of these stories, but uh, like in our family and, um, and when I look back now, well, maybe there's a reason through those influences like what I'm doing now and that I'm just interested in not the old but the new. So I think this is a really beautiful story that also shows that entrepreneurship is probably in your DNA. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> then you also worked at Accenture that basically also, you know, you, you traveled the world uh, for your different clients and then eventually also ended up in, in Silicon Valley with Accenture, where you also traveled before as a private person to, to take some holidays. What was the difference between uh, traveling there as a, as a private person for holiday and being there for business, I think that had a tremendous influence on actually why then also moved there personally. Right. Yeah. So um, as I was looking at, um, and it has a little bit like background also because I started my first company actually in Switzerland in 1993. 
Um, and then through that ended up uh, in, in frontier areas of technology development. Uh, that was at a time then later in 1997 where e-commerce would come up, like it was Yahoo went through the roof, Amazon and everyone was saying, yeah, Amazon will completely fail because nobody will put their credit card number into a screen, right? Um, and those things fascinated me because my first company that I started in Switzerland was all about physical consumer products and how to sell them in traditional ways into retail channels and so on and helping inventors international inventors to place and, and market these products in the European market. Um, so like all of that influence then really got me excited about that next wave of digital. What will happen with an Amazon, right? Will it remain a bookstore? I mean, Jeff has always, always said, this is not just a bookstore. This is just like the right way to start for certain reasons um, to, to find a beachhead and then scale. Um, but there were was criticism, of course, all over the place of like, would that happen or not, right? And so I wanted to learn about that. And then a friend of mine uh, at Accenture called me up and said, hey, why don't you join our e-commerce practice? We'll invest heavily in that space and you learn about it, right? And uh, I was back then uh, uh, through an acquisition, came into Interpublic. So I was at the typical uh, incumbent large advertising conglomerate, a US one. And the whole advertising industry didn't really take digital uh, serious. It was 98, 99, right? Google was just started in 99. And I remember a study I had to do for, uh, for the executive team at Interpublic, how a bunch of us who had technology connections, what we think will happen to the advertising industry in the next 10 years. And our report uh, uh, and our recommendation was that we should start to learn like aggressively about like the Googles and the early and Yahoo's and Amazon because all of that will start to influence how consumers think about buying. We didn't really say, well, it will disrupt the whole advertising industry. It was in the early days, but we said it will influence consumers and we as advertisers will have to understand what, how consumers will embrace it or not. Um, and as an industry who is incumbent, has often and most often a very hard time to actually see the, comp the disruption that is coming because they try to protect what they have. Mm -hmm. And it led to endless discussion. Eventually that call came from Accenture and I'm like, maybe I should just speed up and like go where people already believe that this is happening. And I had an amazing time at Accenture. I, I, I went much deeper into technology. I'm not an engineer. Probably if I could pick again, I would, I would probably do computer science today. <laughs> you only get one shot in that decision. Uh, maybe I'll do it later. I'm close to Stanford now. I can do it there or come back to ETH. That would actually be my choice. Um, and so um, I, I, I learned a lot from very smart technologists, not just technology, but also the combination of technology and how, how can it then have an impact in consumers or businesses, uh, life, right? And through that, um, I got exposed to Silicon Valley, mainly through that B2B marketplace wave. Commerce One was a player, Arriba was a player. Uh, there was actually a, a prominent Swiss, uh, Daniel Eckerter, who, who built um, Tradex that was then acquired by Arriba. So I was right there. Mm -hmm. But I can't remember now, it was still in Switzerland, already there when it happened. Um, but it was fascinating to me to hear that, oh, in that frontier area, 
there's also a Swiss guy there who like is already, I think it was out of Atlanta back then, who is an entrepreneur there, right? So I was influenced by stories like that. I was influenced by um, the this community that believed that e-commerce will be a, a big new thing, digital. And when I came through these projects, uh, like one month, two months at a time to Silicon Valley, I saw Silicon Valley to your question a very different angle. Like when you come there as a tourist, you see Golden Gate, Koi Tower, beautiful landscape, uh, but it feels like there's nothing going on on the surface, right? It's like quiet. Even if you go to Palo Alto, right, or Stanford, it's all like people are walking around and you go to a coffee shop, and, but what, what, what you realize is people are discussing ideas. And it's almost like if you start to double click on those discussions and then um, you, you see there's a lot of depth and aggressiveness to pursue the visions that these people have. And when I came there as a, as a professional with a, in a project, right, uh, you, start to, you start to see the whole thing underneath. And I was like blown away on how people collaborate with each other, like how they help each other. Like there's in any topic you can think of, you for sure find 20 experts in the area. And there's this, there's this amazing thing. You, you, you connect with somebody and you say, hey, I'm, I'm building something in this area, but you have some expertise. I'd love to have half an hour of your time. Can, you have, can we have coffee? And you, it's almost guaranteed that you, next week you'll have coffee with them, right? Independent who it is. And that is an amazing sharing, community, helping each other. You also have this critical mass of successful entrepreneurs and academia who like who 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 want to help and mentor, right? And you can tap into their expertise, and it accelerates on how how fast you kind of go with your own ideas, um, which is amazing. I would probably say in two thousand one when I left Switzerland was in a very different spot. Today, I'm really excited what's going on here, and so. Um, I felt I won my green card in the lottery. Um, and How I felt did that like, happen? Well, like through those projects, I felt like, hey, I want to learn. Like I want to stay there. And I don't want to have an Accenture telling me you can or you cannot. <laughs> right? And so I'm like, how did I do that? Okay, you need the green card. And the diversity visa program that the US had back then, I think it just got stopped, unfortunately, um, by the current leader in the US. Uh, but the... So different countries had different contingents on, on, on getting visas, green cards. Uh, Switzerland had, of course, a smaller one than India, but still I think the chances that you win in, in Switzerland uh, were much higher because fewer people want to go um, uh, in relation to that. And so I won the green card through that lottery. So I came home one, one night uh, um, and from, from one of these trips from the US. I'm like, you know what, maybe that's a way to do it. And I just filled in the application. And then eventually got the letter that says, congratulations, you won the green card in the lottery. And then you have six months to go and you need to pack up and go pretty fast. <laughs> How did that feel when that letter arrived? Were you like super excited or were you also like, okay, this is a new sort of unknown challenge for you too? Well, first I was shocked because I got the letter and it looks very official, US, and the, right? And I always remember when I went as a tourist, um, I not always paid my... Um, Parking tickets. Oh, so you and, were afraid that's fighting back. And, and, and not because I, well, I also didn't want to, but not because I want, didn't want to pay for it because like you're driving and you don't know how it works and then sure. you lose the ticket and then you forget it. And, um, and so 
I knew I missed some, right? And I thought that is a letter that now tells me you're, here's your court date and when you next time enter the US, and all kinds of things before I opened this, uh, next time when you come to the US you need to pay that amount of money or go to, uh, go to court right away or some things like that. And so I opened it and then it was the opposite. So it was first a shock and then like, oh my God, I'm on the green card in the lottery. And then there was also 9-11 happening within your six month time frame. And suddenly you had to decide pretty quickly whether you wanted to go to the US or not, right? Right. Yeah, I remember I came back from uh, Cologne, from Köln, uh, from Germany, from a project. So I couldn't really listen to the news. So I came, um, I came into Zurich, went to the office and it was at the Accenture office at, in, in, in Zurich. And I came into this big room, meeting room, everybody was sitting there, it was death quiet. And I saw the first tower come down. And I remember somebody was standing next to me like, that is a pretty crazy movie. Because I thought it was a movie, right? And he's like, no, that's real. I'm like, I, I mean, it was incredible. And then on the other side, um, uh, Christian Baumgartner, who was leading Accenture back then, in Switzerland came over and, and told me, well, you better go as soon as you can because I had an offer in the US, uh, economy would, would go down and now with the political uncertainty, he, he, his advice was to go as fast as possible before they pull the offer from the US <laughs> office, right? And so that's what I did. I, I basically went home, packed my bags and went with one of the first Swiss air flights into the West Coast. I was on that flight, it was incredibly empty. It was the best flight I ever had. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was, um, it, it, otherwise, like, I might have not, I might have lost my offer to go there, right? And then might have been too late and wouldn't have the green card. And sometimes you just need to make those decisions. All my uh, all my friends and family thought I'm crazy. What, you're still going? I thought, by, by the way, now I definitely have to go. Why? Because... That's what the terrorists want to do, right? They want to, they want to, they want to shock you and scare you, so you stop that. That we stop our plans. And I was like, no, now I definitely go because uh, that's not what, not what anybody should do, right? right? And so, for me, that's very clear. So, and I don't regret it either. It was, it was clearly one of my my best decisions. I met my uh, my, my my new family there. Um, I, I, I was able to go to grad school, I then I did everything I did so far, so I feel like very fortunate. And then also at Accenture, you were basically always working at the next thing with growth teams, with uh, strategy teams, or also with venture teams. So that sort of led the way back to the investment uh, area. Can you tell us a bit more about the 130 investments that you did in, in different companies and startups through Accenture? and how that sort of also shaped your career as, a, as an investor later on. Yeah, sure. I mean, that was the, probably the, the Accenture technology. So Accenture had a, um, it was called Accenture Technology Ventures. It was a venture, a corporate venture arm, really. I didn't do personally 130 in, in investments. Of course. It, was a, it was a portfolio by a global team of different partners in different regions. Um, but for me, it was the first institutional approach to investing. I invested already a little bit before with friends and family. Uh, I invested as a founder, and maybe we talk about that after this question. Like, I actually feel like an investor, the biggest investor is always the founder. And I think that's sometimes uh, really important to remember as a founder. 
Um, but that was the first institutional outside investor angle that I had. And we invested in mainly enterprise. We felt um, it is a great way to bring innovation to our clients. Um, Accenture was also very successful with one investment, which is called Siebel, uh, Siebel CRM. Um, Accenture had a big stake, was an early investor there, and all partners got a very big dividend when, when that company went public. Uh, and, and, and so that was kind of the trigger for Accenture to decide, hey, we need to institutionalize that. And we built, as a company, a portfolio of 130 companies. I was involved in six or seven out of Europe with, I think, three European companies and four in the US. Um, and it was super interesting for me to be involved, not just on the deal side, but also on the operational side. I mean, not operational, but kind of advising side on how to operationalize, go to market and uh, in, in certain technology areas of those startups. Um, yeah, that was that was the, the the first institutional view on how to invest. And then nowadays, you basically took that whole job on on, on your plate uh, with Firefly Venture Partners. You also invest in startups. What was then the motivation to actually you know switch jobs, leave Accenture, and also do that on your own full time? Basically, yeah, it's a uh, uh, it, it it's really like. I feel like investing in startups, particularly early stage, right, when you're very close to kind of the idea and you have maybe two founders, is is very close to entrepreneurship. And we're an early stage fund, so we're usually investing as the first institutional investor in a founding team, right? And so it's not Series D when a lot of spreadsheets and financial models are very important, um, among all the other things. Um, in, in our stage, it's really about uh, the team. What are, what are the stories of the founders? Why do they do this? Is it just to hop on a trend or is it because they have a deeper mission on what they want to do? And we have a little bit a unique angle to look at mission-driven entrepreneurs um, because we, we care about mission and impact. So it has to be something that leaves the world in a better place than than before the entrepreneur did the company but then also it's it's a little bit self-serving to find real entrepreneurs because if you find a mission-driven entrepreneur versus just somebody who hops on a, on a trend you know that person will less likely give up and you see like i mean okay what will we see this year we'll see airbnb in an ipo and many people who are not close to this, they just see the IPO and the billion dollar uh, exits and they're like, wow, I need to do that too. Well, it's not a path from here to here. It's not linear. It is a crazy roller coaster. And if you dig a little deeper in Airbnb, it was a crazy, a crazy roller coaster. Um, and you need to be ready for that. If you're just an entrepreneur who has an idea and hops on a trend, you won't survive when the roller coaster goes down. Because you're like, okay, that's too hard. I go back to my job, right? right. Um, if you have a mission and you try to solve a big problem, and you're on the roller coaster, you will fight whatever is needed to get back up. And even if you don't, and your cart on the roller coaster flies off, and you crash with your company, you start the next one, and you don't give up your like mission. You, you're so committed to what you feel has to be solved that you will just do the next, and. Even now, if we fund a founder who then crashes the company, it doesn't mean that we won't fund him or her uh, in her next startup. Uh, 
as long as ethics and transparency and everything is there, right? right. Uh, the likelihood for you to crash your company is very high. Absolutely. Right. In, in that regard, also the sort of the definition of failure gets a whole new level, right? Because what you just described is like failing doesn't really mean that your company fails, but it's more tied to the mission. Can you also a bit more elaborate on, on that topic? Yeah, I know that's a great, I love that question because, and it has a lot to do with Switzerland, right? How we see failure. And uh, that's something you hear in almost every interview from people like, uh, yeah, we should accept failure. Well, for me personally, it's really about like, you're, you're never really failed, failed and are done with failing before you give up your mission, right? So it's not, it doesn't mean that you failed because you, you missed to make a company successful, but I think you failed and you internally will know when you failed because your head told you now I don't go after my mission anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the moments where you personally are disappointed about yourself because you couldn't find any other way to kind of go after your mission. Right. Then you failed. So. I think in life, like, like, look at that moment and try to avoid that failure, right? The failure of running a company to the ground, sometimes it's needed to keep going on your path. And as long as you keep your mission going that you really care about, then you're just failing. And then hopefully at some point you're succeeding, right? Exactly. And so it's, um, might be a little bit philosophical, but that's really how I think about it. I think that's a beautiful <laughs> definition or way to, to look, at, look at it. Are there some good examples of, of a mission that people follow that you admire, for example? I think you wrote a very great article about Elon Musk, for example, and compared him to Alfred Escher. Maybe you see, also see some mission uh, that drives Elon Musk, for example, is a, is, a, is a good example here. Yeah, I mean, that article I wrote because uh, as, a, as a public market investor, there's growth investors and then there's value investors, right? And okay, Tesla, from a valuation perspective, is always kind of at the extreme outlier of growth investing. So value investing, clearly, I have no argument, no rationale to even touch Tesla, right? As a growth investor, um, you have to get very stretched if you just look at metrics, right? And so I always had a hard time to explain that. And um, it's funny, like, my, my dad visited me in, in Silicon Valley and he asked, what, what are you doing, right? Like, and I always had this, like, like he did, it was hard, it's sometimes hard to understand to your parents what consulting is because you, it, you always do different things, right? right? And then I go, to, and then I leave and do other, start a company that is hard to explain and then, uh, and then I'm investing. So he asked that and, and I explained it to him, well, we, we look for talented people who have our mission driven and then we help them with with what we learned uh, and with with money from our investors to help them succeed. If we believe in what they're doing, it's like, oh, you're you're trying to find the next Alfred Escher, and I hardly remembered from history <laughs> in school who he was. And then he sent me uh, the biography. There's a beautiful like German actually version, an English version from NZZ. and and I'm like, oh my god, he's like he's like the Elon Musk 200 years ago. And, and then I'm like, that's exactly it. It's like an Elon Musk, you, don't, you can't compare a Tesla to Toyota and Volkswagen. It's not a car company. It's like he cares about like solving the energy value chain and how people get from A to B. Uh, and, and he's on a, a value chain level, not on a company level. And, and Alfred Escher was exactly the same. He, he, he wanted to secure, he wanted to build a strategic asset in Switzerland 
uh, that that made sure that if the back then the, the the Germans would attack, that the French would help us or the Italians would help us, um, and in any other uh, combination, right? Um, and so he said, we need a tunnel because if we have a tunnel, and the French would attack us, the Germans would care and they would help us, uh, and if the Italian would do it, like the others would help us, right? And politically, that was his idea, really. Um, and then he realized uh, Switzerland was a very poor country. The people would leave to the U.S. Uh, because we didn't have food here. We don't really have anything, right? We don't have resources, nothing. We only have Alps um, and water. And so um, he realized that uh, there's no commercial banks. There were only private banks in Switzerland. And so he's like, I can't take the money from the people I try to protect Switzerland from. So I need to start a commercial bank. And so he started ESCA, which became Credit Suisse. So he was thinking on solving a higher level problem than just a company. So very mission driven, right? Um, and then the, it goes on, right? I mean, then he didn't, con didn't really have the engineering talent he needed and he realized uh, Switzerland needs to be leading around engineering uh, and sciences. And so he started ETH and then um, he founded ETH and then he realized that um, uh, insurance is a market that or, or a problem we have to solve because of the people who go and build these tunnels. Uh, so he started Swiss Life and then insurance companies overextend themselves so they need an insurance too. So he started Swiss Re. So it's like if you look at it and just look, that guy is completely unfocused, right? And Elon too. People criticize him for saying, hey, well, what are you doing? Like you're doing SpaceX, Tesla. Uh, digging tunnels, interestingly, also digging tunnels, <laughs> like Alfred Escher. <laughs> but it's all a perspective on how you define focus and what problem do you try to solve. Mm -hmm. And I think as an entrepreneur and as an investor, you need to be sometimes a little bit more creative on how you define that. And it's clearly, in my opinion, it's clearly the wrong approach to say Tesla is a car company. That's not the problem he tries to solve, right? Uh, it's just part of the solution. And that's why I believe in that article, right? I saw, I, I said 10, uh, Tesla will be 10x in 10 years, just to, because it's, it's, it sounds easy I, or simple. I think it will actually be worth more because the problems he solves are massive and he doesn't give up, right? Because I also, I, th I think I say 10% probability of being zero because he always pushes Tesla and anything he does to the edge. So there's very little... Uh, wiggling way to like if something goes wrong yeah. but that's what you got to do if the, the life is short <laughs> <laughs> absolutely are there also other examples from startups that you invested in uh, for like good missions that they follow and that inspire them and drive them we so we when we when we look at entrepreneurs and and maybe on the uh, on the on the mission side of our fund so when i came to silicon valley there was one a crazy guy who started to talk about software as a service and, and that was Mark Benioff who started Salesforce. And it was a small company. He came out of Oracle. Oracle is an important Accenture partner. Uh, we, were, um, we were building, um, uh, we were thinking about as a strategy team, the future of enterprise software. It was around 2000, uh, between 2002 and four. And we saw this software as a service move coming and um, I was lucky to just be able to go and chat with Mark Benioff and Suzanne DiBianca and the early team members, Tian Suo, who then started Suora, which is now also a public company, um, and just 
understand what they were trying to do and where they see the future. And to me, their explanation of software as a service, on-demand computing, cloud, uh, it just made sense. Um, it, was, it had a lot of hurdles because software was not bought that way. Uh, CTOs were very concerned to have data outside their firewall. But these people saw around the corner. They were contrarians, but right, right? Reed Hoffman said that very beautifully. As an entrepreneur, you have to be contrarian. You have to believe in something that 99% of the people don't believe in, but eventually you have to be right, right? If, if you invest in things that everybody already knows, then you, you're basically like investing in a commodity. Um, so it's okay if a lot of people tell you you're wrong, this will never work and whatever. And Mark was one of the icebreakers like that created this opening and a big big pack of eyes to like uh, build opportunity for for a new world of software, right? Um, maybe that's the, the the wrong comparison because a lot of ice breaking uh, is happening because of climate change. But he clearly he clearly opened up that that path for other entrepreneurs to build a big ecosystem, right? Uh, in that space. But where I wanted to go around mission driven is Mark also uh, at that point I was at doing my MBA as well and I learned in school like shareholder principle and stakeholder principle. And so when he told me the first time about his, his beliefs on compassionate capitalism, uh, which is like, okay, as a company, you have to give back to community. And, and I tried to understand, okay, so you're really a stakeholder guy. And, and I remember he told me, no, no, I'm just a smart shareholder guy, uh, which is interesting. It's an interesting statement of, of like, no, it is about driving profits. If you do it in a smart way and you take care of your environment, you'll be more successful long term. And today, Salesforce is a company that always gets the highest scores of employee satisfaction. It's one of the most successful software service companies. Um, they, it's an amazing culture in the company. And, and there's a lot of data where Suzanne DiBianca, who, who, who ran that program for many years since the beginning with Mark, um, can prove that it actually works. So the program 111, I don't know if you heard about that before, but 1% of equity, 1% of time, 1% of um, product goes back to the community. Might sound like little, but the point of that is if you build that into the DNA of a company from the very beginning, you just build a very different company. You build a company that thinks a little farther than just creating a product and shipping it. Uh, the people who join your company, they think harder about joining because like, they will ask, the good people always ask, what's your mission? Where do you want to go? And if there's more than just a company and selling product, um, what I realized through my life is you attract better, more resilient people, people who care more about more than just themselves, mm -hmm. the better team players. And so it has a lot, of, uh, a lot of benefits to think that way. And it influenced me since the beginning when I met him in 2001, what that could mean. And when I started my startup back in 2012, it was actually the core mission was around that, bringing, doing well and doing good together. And so through my life, I started to really think about that. Uh, uh, and I was influenced very early then I realized uh, also as an 80 year old, and I think we, we talk about that a little later. Um, but um, it, it, I realized that um, Mission-driven is something important to find the true, um, the true goal of, of an entrepreneur, of what you do, right? Mm -hmm. When I then 
found my partner at Firefly, uh, Julie Maples, she also did a lot of philanthropic giving back activities in her life. She started one of the biggest wine auctions in, in the US uh, to give back for, uh, uh, for independent, crazy scientists who have different approaches on how to kill cancer, um, which is also kind of seed funding. Um, and she has an, done an amazing job over the last 20 years. Uh, she lost her, her mom very early uh, to cancer and for her there was very, very a very important thing to think harder about uh, and she spent a lot of time and effort to build up that team and that uh, that effort um, and so when we got together with Firefly we said hey we somehow need to to do something uh, to keep us going on that path of, of giving back and finding entrepreneurs who have a deeper mission right because in Silicon Valley sometimes if you if you particularly earlier now, like everybody seems to be jumping on that thing. But let's say five years ago, it was like, well, no, no, you drive profits first and then you can go after your hobby of making the world better, right? right? Silicon Valley sometimes is a little bit too much in love with itself, thinking any piece of technology that uh, is developed, it will do good. And as we know, we're going into a very different phase in the next 10, 15 years around data ethics, AI, we have to go a little deeper, right? Not, it's not just about technology anymore. And, and so um, that was important to us. So we, we actually, we, we looked for concepts. How could we do this and implement it with our fund when we started it in, back in 2015? Julie and I, by the way, we, we did investing, both of us, uh, for a long time before. And she did, it, she did it much earlier already in Silicon Valley when I was not even there yet. I was just watching from Europe. Um, and... And we felt like we just want to have that component in our fund too. And we debated and brainstormed and then uh, we're like, wait, what about 111 from Mark Benioff? And um, I contacted uh, Suzanne DiBianca and uh, said, is it okay if, um, if we steal that concept from Salesforce? And she's like, she's, she's, she's laughing and she's like, yeah, of course. Um, and I'm super proud that you guys want to bring this to venture capital. We were the first firm probably, actually there was another one in Australia associated with Atlassian who did it as well, but we were the first firm to really take that concept and not just using it for ourselves as the firm, but also allowing entrepreneurs to think about it and implement those ideas. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs we, we interview and they pitch to us and they're trying to get to this like, what is your mission really? Right? And then they're like, well, maybe I shouldn't tell you because you're an investor, right? <laughs> Until we, we actually disclose, we're actually okay with that. If you have an idea and you think your technology can do more than just, just sell it, but it can have an impact, Warby Parker is an idea, right? Like you, you buy a pair of glasses and somebody in need gets one. Those ideas are not necessarily just reducing your profits. They build a brand and you might be selling more and have an impact, right? And that thought fascinated us of like, impact is, is not, today's impact world, like today I think that the, the, the stats are 90% of investments, of overall investments go into traditional investing and 10% today are, are impact investments. And we feel, uh, Julie and I, we feel like that's, complete nonsense it should just be 
thoughtful, impactful investments. It shouldn't be, if you say 10% are impact investments, and you're basically saying 90%, what are they? They don't care. <laughs> they just care about yeah, profits. Right. I mean, it's an interesting debate, and we decided that we want to help entrepreneurs to proactively go after those uh, because it might be a way to motivate them as well to think even harder and work harder and make their companies work. And in some cases, we have quite a few stories where that actually starts to work and is working. And we also feel like we win deals because we disclose that and have that proactive discussions because other investors saying, no, don't do that. That's not a focus. And this relationship between, you know, the mission driven or the impact that you have of your business and the, the more positive return is also something that you experienced early on as an eight year old when you were selling greeting cards, right? Yeah. Can you probably tell us this story? Because I think this is a very good illustration of what you just described. Right. Actually, the, uh, my parents really had to lift me to uh, not being greedy. Um, so, yeah. So, I, I mean, any, every kid that is born in Switzerland, I think, is just incredibly lucky. Right? We get born here. We go to school. We don't really know what, what other kids don't have. And um, when I was seven or seven or eight... Um, I wanted to have a new bike because my brother got one. He was a little older and my parents said, no, you got to wait. And I'm like, okay, I'm buying it by myself. And so my parents were teaching me, my dad was a really good artist and we were always drawing a lot of things. And, and so my brother and I and my sister were always good in art. And so I said, okay, well, this is my talent and I'm drawing cards, greeting cards. I'll go to the market and sell them. Uh, and I will use the money to buy my bike. Right. So I told, I, I said, that's my plan. And my parents were like, yeah, why don't you go to the local market uh, and, uh, and sell those? And so I was drawing dozens of cards, went to the market and was there the whole day on Saturday. And it was very boring. And I sold two cards and I had two, four francs, two francs, I think afterward, two or four francs. Still a bit, a long Still way to go. A long way to go. <laughs> very long way to go. And I came back home and my dad uh, and my mom asked, so how did it go? And uh, they were, of course, checking on me like the whole day. Um, and I was very frustrated. And I'm like, well, I have to go like many times. I have to go back many times um, to get that done. And, uh, and then my parents took like, um, like an ad from Terre des Hommes, which is a nonprofit that helps kids in Africa uh, and, and showed me the first time like where I saw like a shocking picture of a kid that really hasn't didn't eat for like a long time. And uh, that's a different time, right? This is the time when the parents can take away your newspaper, the newspaper, and you don't know what's going on in the world. That, that doesn't happen today. Today the kids no internet, no smartphone. <laughs> that's right. So I'd, that was the first time and it was I was shocked, right? And I'm like, why I'm already having a bad day not selling anything on my market. Why is my, my, why are my parents showing me this? And then my, my, my parents told me, well, this is a kid who has other problems than buying a bike. And you have a bike, it's just not a new one. <laughs> and it might be a little too small now, but that kid has different problems. And, that, and then I'm like, okay, why does that matter? <laughs> and, uh, and, and so... My, my parents said, look, maybe you should forget your bike. The idea with your cards is a great one, but why don't you make that money and then you give it to Terdezom and help those kids? Um, and I'm like, I can do that? And they're like, 
well, you could make that money and then maybe you sell more. And when you send that money to that organization, they will go to Africa and get that money directly to those kids and they might get a breakfast, right? Mm -hmm. And because as a kid, you don't even understand how somebody here in Switzerland can help in Africa, right? And so for me, it is like, I'm not sure if I slept, but I had, a, I, it was, I clearly remember it as a day that had a lot of impact on me. And um, so the next day I, I said, okay, and, and, my, and I'm like, what about my bike? <laughs> He's like, well, why don't you try this? And then you can always go back to your bike, right? Mm -hmm. like, okay. So I go the next day and, and I have tear this on. And, um, and, and, and I say like every, every cent of what you buy goes to tear this on. And the whole thing is sold out, right? And I, I made $200, uh, 200 Swiss francs that day. And I'm like, wow, that's half the bike or even the whole bike back then, I can't remember now. But um, but yes, this is a promise, I will send that money to Terrorism. And at that point, I also felt like, wow, these people all care about that too. Maybe I'm just a jerk and I don't care, I really care about... So it was like a very fast learning curve. I'm like, okay, this is not about all about yourself, right? And so, but it also had this impact of like the success story of then selling all of this and these people who asked me all these questions about terrorism that I couldn't really answer because I just learned about it the, the previous night is like, I need to learn about this. And, and so we sent this first uh, uh, um, payment to terrorism and they realized I'm like seven or eight years old and they sent me all these materials that I could also put on the, on the booth. And I went back and back and back and I went many times and eventually um, a, a journalist like heard about it in uh, the Lampot, the Lampot is still, still around. Still exists in Winterthur, yeah, absolutely. Tagesan Tiger now, right? It belongs to Tagesan Tiger. Oh, yeah. um, and and then he he came on a Saturday when I was there and started to take pictures and interviewed me, and then I ended up on the uh, on the front page as the youngest entrepreneur in Winterthur, um, helping kids in Africa. And uh, I got all this credit. It was not really my idea, but um, I feel like. It was really my parents' idea, but it was something that I actually never really... I mean, I, I did that then for an year or two. Mm -hmm. um, and later, I didn't really make the connection of what I just told you about Mark Benioff and 111. But I didn't... Sometimes you don't connect these things. Why you do these things? Because well, But I think when I look back now, all of these things have, have a clear connection, right? Uh, on mission-driven. And... I, I realized with, with when I look now, I realized that even people who don't think about it, giving back. Mm -hmm. we, because I look at it through a different lens, and my partner as well, uh, Julie, we might see a piece of technology that could have such a huge impact in another place that we might suggest it right. and, um, and, and see how their entrepreneur reacts. We don't force it on our entrepreneurs. We also invest in companies that don't have that. Mm -hmm. We just felt like it's an amazing filter for really finding people who care more than just the company. And those are usually the ones who care about a mission who then don't give up, right? So it's kind of, um, it's an interesting path. And then on, on mega trends, I mean, if you look at how younger kids, e even my kids, how they're informed, how much they know about what's going on in the world and how many questions I get that are hard to answer sometimes to a, to a 
to a, a child who is like seven years old because they saw it on a news feed is incredible. And those kids are all influenced with what's going on, the uh, going on in the world much earlier, and therefore they become active on trying to change it much earlier. And therefore I, I'm very positive for the world because our generations are kind of sitting here not doing much, but you see this move coming certain things have to change very quickly right and and that's and i constantly run into these people and it's super motivating what would you recommend to young people just finishing school or university about how to go and find and learn more about the, the mission that really drives them is there any good recommendation from your end i just think follow your passion you can't go and learn being mission driven you i think you learn being mission driven around following your passion because when you follow your passion always i mean always think life is short and always take any opportunity to follow your passion and don't think about like oh maybe that job pays better and therefore i go and divert away from what my passion my heart really tells me because as soon as you do that you're wasting your time right you might make more money but that's that's at the end just money it's like It's your life and finding your passion that really allows you to see what your mission is, mm -hmm. right? The worst is if you're like 99 and you're like, you have a few more breaths and you have to feel like uh, you just discovered two weeks ago what you should have done in your life because you followed the wrong signals or you followed a herd mentality of what people think is right to do that's a waste of your life right and so i i felt when i look back sometimes i did that too but i always kind of eventually i had a, an awakening thing that said okay i'm on the wrong path that's not what i want to do can you give us an example for such a situation um so accenture is one of them right with accenture um it is a it, it is an amazing company where you kind of get hired and then you're in an open marketplace of hundreds of opportunities You, got to you have to follow your passion there because if you don't, you just get pushed into like the projects that you don't really like. They, so I, when, I, when I started at Accenture, uh, I got the advice often that, hey, if you want to make partner, you have to focus more on the bigger projects because there you can show that you can generate revenue and you'll be more successful faster and you become partner faster. For me, That was always like, I was always at the smaller, edgy things. Those start small, right? Yeah. The Mark Benioff Salesforce thing was very hard to build up that partnership. Now, today, it's the biggest partnership between a services company and a software company with, I think, more than $2 billion on each side. But it took years to get there, right? And I was, I was, I was lucky that I just arrived in Silicon Valley. Nobody really wanted to take care of that company because it would also disrupt Accenture's implementation model right with software as a service but for me it was fascinating so i followed that passion and spent time with, with with all of that early stuff because i felt like that's the next thing i could have gone and done large scale implementations which would have probably i would have become partner faster at accenture i became partner in 2007 which is still not bad after um nine years um, but I probably could have been faster but would I have learned the same things 
Would I have been exposed to the same opportunities that are so important for me now personally? No, I've never, right? Um, Accenture to me is like family, like, it, but, and, and I found mentors within Accenture who helped me stay true to like what I want to do, right? And that's, that's like, it's just super important because if you stay on your, on your path that you feel is the right path, even though it's not the money or wherever everybody else goes, you run, you, you much more convincing to others. You're much more convincing. You're much more passionate. You have more to say. You don't get tired. Life is not, when you follow your passion, life feels like not work, but just fun. I don't feel I'm working. I'm working very hard and very long. And <laughs> it doesn't feel like work. <laughs> That's a beautiful feeling, right? It's a beautiful feeling, but you only do that if you follow your passion. And sometimes it's hard to know if you're still on your path. So, so I, I did larger, uh, larger engagements as well, but I was not happy. And I'm like, this is boring to me. Like doing too many, too many things too many times for too long gets boring to me, right? And that's not my strength. And so it's important. It's super important in certain jobs, but that would be the wrong thing for me because I wouldn't be good. Or I could force myself in there and get really unhappy, <laughs> right? And so I've always followed on the, and that's why investing for me is also so exciting, particularly early stage, because you work with multiple entrepreneurs, you have to deal with multiple problems. You can help this entrepreneur because you just learned something from this entrepreneur. Um, and we all learn from each other, right? Um, building an early st stage venture firm, um, I mean, we're still entrepreneurs too. Like we started in 2015. Yes, we have like, we invested over the last 15 years, but we started a firm and it's building up a firm. We're like doing the same thing. We're raising funds. We're having our customers. We see our, our, our founders. We serve them, right? We're not investing them and then they report back to us. And we're part of their team. And, and so we're building, a, a, we're building kind of a startup on top of startups, right? And if a startup, if a founder becomes successful, we need that successfully for us to be successful. Um, otherwise we lose, right? It's like, we don't make our own story. Really. We make the, the story, the combined story of the startups we support and the founders we support. And so, uh, I think that's a, uh, not every investor sees it that way, but Julie and I, we are both, we both have entrepreneurial backgrounds. And so we, we always feel in the shoes of the entrepreneur much more than the investor. Um, and that helps in times when when things don't go well and there's always a moment <laughs> that's part of entrepreneurship <laughs> many moments where yeah. things don't go well and you need you need the right partners then who 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 were in those shoes as well and don't freak out and stress out and make the wrong decisions or push you into wrong decisions in that regard earlier you also mentioned that the investment of the entrepreneur is actually the most important one can you also tell us a bit more about what that actually means that, you know, the time of the, uh, of the, of the founders or the entrepreneurs is actually probably even more important than the money coming from the investor. Yes. So the, the entrepreneur, like sometimes it's this weird relationship and, and particularly Swiss entrepreneurs, actually us too, like a lot of entrepreneurs come and ask us, how should we tell our story that investors will like it? And that's, and I always like almost get mad. I'm like, that's don't, that's the wrong thing to think about this. The biggest investor in what you do is yourself. Money is secondary. 
because you only have that much time in your life and you de just dedicated a big chunk of your time that you have to your startup. So you invest your time, so you have opportunity cost. You probably invested some money. You probably invested relationship because you asked your friend and your dad and maybe your girlfriend or your wife to invest as well. For sure, you might not even have, have asked your partner, your wife, husband, uh, uh, fiance. You, you might because they're just with you, but they're investing because they have to deal with you when you're at a low point uh, and you're in a bad mood. They have to deal with the anxiety that like, okay, you're making less money and it's very uncertain if you're successful. Uh, they deal with you waking up at 3 a.m. at night because you're like having to fix a code that just because the system crashed with a customer. They are your partner, right? So you're investing your life, your time, your relationships. You put all of that into one basket. Now, the investor who gives you a check, that's like a minor thing, right? <laughs> if, you, if you think about it that way. So it's, it's, I, I always feel like investors are a little bit overrated, that they're very helpful and many investors are majorly responsible for some of the successes, but because they're good partners and they understand this, not because they gave them the money, right? The money is, is needed to scale. Of course, you need capital, right? But it's about the moments when things don't go how they go. It's the moments when let's say uh, a founder gets into serious problems with, in a relationship because like it, it, there's too much, uh, too much tension. Sometimes I have discussions with a partner of a, of a founder when it really goes bad. Mm -hmm. So that uh, the stories that, that she or he hears at home are not, um, there's another version to it, right? And we as investors can then sometimes help to tell the story, yeah, you're in a tunnel and, but, there's light at the end of the tunnel and this is a very bad time but don't put everything like don't crash everything because of this phase of the tunnel and so it's uh you do a lot of as as investors you do a lot of other work to help the entrepreneurs to get through that sometime but my, my tip for an entrepreneur is really think about yourself as the biggest investor and think about your mission stay true to your passion and it should be, you should think of it as an honor for somebody else to, to invest in your company. It's not like, oh, you have to go back and like, <laughs> it's, it's overrated, I feel like. The investment part is, I feel a little bit overrated. I think this is a very beautiful statement to end this episode. Before we conclude, we have two last questions for you. The first one is, are there any favorite gadgets or tools that you use yourself on a regular basis that you can recommend? Could be or tools. your phone, a specific yoga mat, uh, anything that comes to mind. Sure. I love my Tesla 3. <laughs> I think that's a very good one. <laughs> it has almost everything in it. Big screen, a phone. Phone is not there, but I definitely make my calls from there. Awesome. And are there any additional resources like blogs, books, podcasts, whatsoever, that you yourself consume on a regular basis? Yes, I'm reading a lot. So I think reading is, 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 is one of the things that really just excite me because they, they open more questions than answers to really good books. And, mm -hmm. and so I love to like, 
I, I love to explore and get as many different opinions about a topic than I can. That's why I also love to, I'm a, I'm a bad writer, uh, but well, that's not true. Well, I have help there. I have ideas, but then I have help on how to write it. But, um, I love to write because not because of, uh, just stating a point of view, but because of like putting an opinion out there is controversial because I get a lot of feedback from people who agree and people who disagree. And the people who disagree is super interesting for me to dive into and say, so why do you disagree? What, what, is, what do you think the future will look like? And so without, without reading, you don't get to new ideas on how the world is going. And so there's, there's many books, and I think every month I probably at least read seven to ten books on, on different topics. So I should, I should probably publish a book list as well if somebody's interested. That would be to do a that. good uh, suggestion for a next blog article. <laughs> few, of few yours. people, few people do that, and sometimes I pick up actually the books that other people are people are reading too on, on on their list. I should probably do that. So we stay tuned for another cool blog article of yours in that regard. Then one of my favorite books, by the way, um, is and it, it remained as one of my favorite is Life Three uh, uh, It's a uh, it's a book about AI, so I don't want to talk about it too much because uh, there's a lot of interesting emotions that will come up if you decide to read it. But it's a it's a book about how how life three could look like, and it's a beautiful book um, that opens more questions than gives you answers. It always goes back to so what do you think, and uh, that's a very interesting. If you're interested in artificial intelligence and how robotics and, and all those coming technologies will impact us, mm -hmm. it's a beautiful book to read to start thinking and make up your mind what you would do. So that's one of my favorite. But then... Sounds like an interesting trip to take. The next one. <laughs> awesome. Philip, that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for your valuable stories and insights. And we're already looking forward to the next episode with you. Thank all you so best. much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the content, we would be thrilled to receive your rating on Apple Podcasts. That way you not only support Swisspreneur, but also help other entrepreneurs discovering the show and finding more valuable information on how to run their businesses. Next week, we will already be back with an all new episode of the Swisspreneur Show. So we hope to see you again then for a new episode. In the next episode of Swisspreneur, you will learn from Philip Stauffer how you can grow your company internationally, why Silicon Valley is not always the right choice for your startup, and also whether he prefers Apple or Google. Make sure to tune in to an all-new episode of the Swisspreneur Show next week.